Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have part three of the Secret Agent X story, The Fear Merchants. Originally published in March 1936 and written by Paul Chadwick under the pseudonym Brandt House. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books in our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 6, X Under Fire. Don't move, warned Purcell. Don't move or I'll shoot. You must have murdered Monkford. I won't hesitate to kill. The agent looked from one glaring, contorted face to the other and knew his danger. Rice, too, had drawn his gun. X made no attempt to stir. He sat deathly still, the brandy glass still balanced in his hand. She must telephone the police, said Purcell. They'll be here any minute now, and they'll know how to make you confess what you've done with Monkford. They'll find out who you are. It's incredible, gasped Rice. I swear it was Monkford. If we're wrong, it's going to be embarrassing. We're not wrong, Joe. This man couldn't give up me those numbers. If it was Monkford, he surely would. The agent screwed his face into a patient smile. It is going to be embarrassing, you're right. But I'll do my best to explain things to the police. You've both of you been through enough tonight to shake any man. The eyes of Joe Rice seemed to waver in doubt, but Purcell's were steady. Bluffing won't help you. I've been associated with Monkford for more than ten years. He always uses his left hand for everything, and he's got a memory like a hawk. He could give me the numbers of every policy in the office if I asked him. Shima spoke up. The honorable police will be here quickly. They promise most faithfully to hurry. His eyes, bright with fear, were fixed intently on the agent. This, I should say, is a very extraordinary person, sir. It's Shima's humble opinion that he is man of a thousand faces. Purcell gasped. Agent X, by heavens, you may be right. I've heard of him. One of the most dangerous criminals in the country. Shima nodded. Exceedingly wicked, can assume any disguise like evil spirit. Wanted by police everywhere. A hush fell over the room. The air was charged with tension. All eyes were fixed on Agent X. Minutes dragged by. Down in the street, a siren suddenly sounded. Purcell spoke with abrupt relief. The police, open the door for them, Shima. The Japanese backed away, hardly able to take his fascinated eyes off Agent X. Inwardly, the agent tensed. He had waited, hoping for some opportunity to make a break for freedom. None had come. Now it was apparent that he must make one quickly. The police, aroused by the wave of crime in the city, would shoot first and ask questions afterwards. They would be here any moment. Risking quick death, X made a lightning play. His heels rested hard against the floor. He still held the glass of brandy. He pushed down and forward with his feet, shoving the chair straight backward. At the same instant, he flung the liquor with a sweeping motion in the face of the two men. The stream only touched Purcell, but caught caught Rice full in the eyes. Rice gasped and fired. Bullets torn to the carpet at the spot where Agent X had been. Purcell fired, but X had tumbled over the chair. As the chair struck, he twisted desperately. Purcell changed the angle of his automatic, shooting straight at the chair. Bolt slapped against it. Purcell, swearing again, swung his gun muzzle to change his aim. But X had grasped the edge of the rug on which Purcell stood. He gave it a violent yank at the moment that Purcell pumped the trigger. Death missed the agent by mere fractions of inches. Purcell flailed his left arm wildly, trying to keep his balance. He lost it, toppled, and fell. Instantly, the agent was upon him. He pinned Purcell down, crashed a fist into his body, and disarmed him. Rice had wiped the brandy from his eyes. He leaped forward to bring his gun muzzle thudding on the agent's skull. X saw him from the corner of his eye and kicked out viciously, making Rice stagger back. But a shrieking, hissing cyclone of human energy leaped across the room. Shima flung himself on the agent's back, fingers around his neck. The agent had dropped his gun in his desperate excitement he was resorting to primitive methods of battle. Purcell was disarmed, almost senseless, but Rice was still in the fight 
and Shima's attack had been unexpected. The agent fought with the quick-witted courage that carried him through a hundred frays. He fought with the knowledge that this time his fate hung in the balance, for Shima's fingers had the muscular wiriness of his race. Shima was ready to kill to protect his master. X did the one thing possible. There was no time for nicety of action. He toppled backwards on Shima, plunging with all his weight to crush the stillness out of the strangling fingers. Shima gave a gasp and his hands relaxed. In that split second, the agent twisted and shook him off as a terrier might a rat. Rush was running toward him, raising his gun to fire. X ducked as a bullet whined past him. Cordite fumes plumed in his nostrils. He closed in viciously, locking arms around Rice's body. The next instant he stiffened, for there had come a sound of trampling in the hall outside. He swiveled his head, caught sight of blue uniforms and visor caps charging through the door. The grim faces of cops showed underneath the visors. There were two of them, occupants of the fast radio crews that had drawn up below. In their fingers, police positives gleamed. This is the man, screamed Rice. Help me, he's killing... X cut the words off with a sh- savage, short-arm punch that the police didn't see. As Rice swayed away from it, X pointed to with his other hand. He's trying to murder us! The cops stood confused a moment. They had come in answer to a telephone message that the desperate criminal was in Purcell's apartment being held prisoner. But Purcell, Mumford, and Rice had become familiar to the police since the arson outrage had started. They didn't know whom to arrest. The Jap looked as likely as any. They started toward him. No, screamed Rice, getting back his breath. It's this man who's posing as Monkford. The police stopped again. Their uncertainty gave X his chance. He ran straight toward them in long, flying leaps. He struck right, then left, with hammering fists, knocking them both to their knees. He reached the door and slammed it behind him, plunging quickly along the apartment hall. The elevator that brought the two cops up was still at the landing. Its uniform operator was waiting, glued to the spot with curiosity, anxious to know what the trouble was. Mr. Monkford, he gasped. Well, what's all the shooting? Down, said the agent. We've got to get more help. The boy jabbed his controls and the car shot downward. It reached the bottom floor. The grill clicked open and next plunged out. A man in an immaculate frock coat came running up, wringing his white hands distractedly. Mr. Monkford, I don't understand any of it. Someone just telephoned down from Mr. Parcell's apartment and said to hold you. You'll excuse me, I hope. Certainly. The agent's arm flashed out. His open hand caught the man in the chest, pushed him back forcibly into a potted palm. The palm toppled off its pedestal with a crash of crockery, and the apartment manager sprawled on top of it, screaming. X bolted for the door. Other police cruisers were moaning down the block. The agent ran to the end of the alley, climbed a fence, and was soon lost in the shadowy courtyard beyond. There, crouching in darkness, he changed his disguise quickly. There was no time for careful work. His long fingers moved the seeming magic over his features, remodeling them to one of the stock impersonations he sometimes wore. This was necessary. There would be a police broadcast out for the man who looked like Monkford. Every cop, every detective would be watching for him. In his new role, surely he wouldn't be recognized, he chartered a cab, raced back to the vicinity of his hideout where he had left Monkford. He walked the rest of the way on foot, entered the shuttered house with a special key, came to a pause in the mysterious room with silence disturbed only by the breathing of the two sleeping men. The agent worked quickly, putting Monkford's clothes back on him, returning everything that had been in the pockets. Then he took the two unconscious men back to Monkford's car. He laid them on the floor of the rear compartment, spread a dark robe over them. But before he drove the car out, he made another put on another set of plates, one of several he had had made himself for just such occasions. If he had left Monkford's own on, he would have run the risk of being waylaid in the first few blocks. Sharp-eyed police would be on the lookout for Monkford's car. Even with the new fake plates, the agent drove swiftly, carefully. He was glad when he finally felt free to abandon Monkford's car on a side street far from his hideout. Both men would regain consciousness in about an hour and could then tell whatever story they chose to the police. The agent paused in a dark doorway, and his fingers went again to the tiny radio instrument in his belt. He engaged the cord of the receiver, tapped out the secret signals that could be heard by Bates. Almost immediately, an answering series of dots and dashes buzzed in the receiver. The engine's fingers pressed the button key again. Waiting for report. 
No trace of Boss Santos, scouring entire city. Santos dropped out of sight three months back. His racket men not seen recently in Underworld Haunts. Police also stumped. The agent tapped the reply. Get in touch with operatives in all key cities. Check up on jails and prisons. Don't stop to light his throne on Santos' disappearance and whereabouts of mob. What of Heron? He seems frightened. Has hired private detectives to guard home. One of our operatives has taken room across street. H being shadowed. Tapped X. Good. Have further plan of action. Arsenal Ring can be expected to threaten other big insurance companies. Immediate installation of midget automatic dictographs in offices of all executives necessary. Meet man named Scully carrying tan suitcase at the corner of Jane Crosby Streets in half an hour. He'll provide equipment. The agent changes the radio Jim Hobart's wavelength. The red-headed operative who worked for the man he knew only as A.J. Martin corroborated Bates' report on Heron and Santos. To him, X issued a different order. Executive heads of Great Eastern Insurance Company, Purcell, Rice, and Monkford, fear possible attack from members of Arson Ring. Half homes of each carefully shadowed. Report trouble instantly. Police may be watching. Proceed with extreme caution. X left his temporary station and strode grimly off into the darkness. He himself had played a role of Scully and distribute midget dictographs to Harvey Bates and his operatives, who would then be in position to learn any extortion threats that the arson ring might send. Eighteen hours later, Agent X paced the floor of his secret hideout. The light of battle shone brightly in his eyes. A sardonic, humorless smile twitched the corners of his mouth. Today's papers were spread out on a table beside him. Their front pages were taken up with the arson menace and the details of the shocking murders. The headlines of several read, Man of Mystery, Secret Agent X, Behind Threat to City. The story of his attack on the two policemen in Purcell's apartment followed. Shima's suspicion that the man posing as Monkford was Agent X had been corroborated by the words of Monkford himself. The president of Great Eastern Insurance told he and his chauffeur had been kidnapped. They remembered nothing of what had taken place during the time they had been unconscious. They didn't know where they had been taken, but it was obvious that a master disguise had impersonated Monkford. That man, the police believed, could only be one person, Secret Agent X. At this moment, detectives were combing the city for him. Anyone suspected of being X was in danger of being shot on sight. But the danger of police capture wasn't that what excited X. He had faced that danger many times before. It was part of his daily life. What made him nervous was the knowledge that he would soon learn whether the arson ring had made any threats during the past eight hours. The dictographs had been successfully distributed in the darkest, bleakest period of the early morning. It was after five o'clock. The offices of the big insurance companies must be almost emptied of employees and officials. In a short time now, Bates and his operatives with their special skeleton pass keys will collect the dictographs. In a short time, Secret Agent Jacks would know. At 5.30, his radio buzzed into life, like a vibrant winged insect. The dots and dashes formed the letters of Bates' secret call. There was quickness and excitement in their hasty repetition. X stopped in his restless pace and gave the signal that he was listening. The message tapped out by Bates came so swiftly that only the man, trained like X in government radiography, could have understood it. Dots and dashes seemed to tumble over themselves. Norton King, head of Universal Insurance Company, contacted by Arson Ring this afternoon. Under threat of 10 properties being destroyed, aggregating $4 million in policies, has agreed to pay over 200000 in cash for immunity. King will charter plane and pilot at City Airport, then fly due west at 8 this evening with cash and suitcase. No other instructions. Plane equipped with radio may receive second message in air. The agent clenched his fist as Bates stopped calling. He expected something like this. A foolproof method of delivering the extortion money when the arson ring contacted victims sufficiently scared to yield. The agent gave Bates swift instructions not to attempt to shadow King. He had obtained the information he desired. The rest was up to him. Chapter 7. Sky Menace Norton King stirred in his bedchamber with the quick jerky strides of a person gripped by fear. He was a big man, big in stature, big in fortune, big in the influence he wielded as chairman of the Board of Universal Insurance. But for all his power and prestige, he couldn't hold terror entirely at bay. 
Even before the arson ring had called him up, King had made his decision. If immunity could be bought, he would buy it, however big the price. A $200,000 payment was better than having millions in property go up in smoke, the good name of his company with it. He had taken no one into his confidence, not even the police. The criminals had stressed the folly of police protection. He had therefore made his arrangement quickly. To the bank, which had agreed to supply cash on the strength of company securities, he had merely explained he needed the money for an individual advertising campaign in the Midwest. He made the same explanation to his family when he chartered the private plane. No one guessed his plans, but King, alone in his room, was battling terror. He sensed the hideous danger of any contact with such a criminal group. He did not know yet exactly how the money was to be turned over. Perhaps his life would be forfeited along with it. He did not notice the faint, stealthy sound on the lawn below his window. Thick vines grew up the side of his old family house. They had been rustling in the wind all evening. He bent over the problem of his shoes. Outside in the darkness, a huge shadow, black and agile as a spider, mounted toward him. The shadow was a man in a warm but loose-hanging coat. A man with powerful muscles, rippling and tightening like cords across his shoulders. A man with a flashing, penetrating gaze. Secret Agent X. The agent had been waiting in the chill darkness for 20 minutes. Before that, he had taken a stealthy tour of the entire lawn. He had familiarized himself with the king's mansion-like house. He had laid his perilous plans carefully. The strong wisteria vines held his weight. He reached king's window in a moment. One glance through the crack under the shade told him, as he had figured, that this was the right room. Holding himself firmly with braced feet, he drew a small fountain pen from his top coat pocket. He twisted the point, held it easily, and appeared to write around the edge of the big pane close to the frame. Behind the sliding pen point, a faint vapor rose and a white line formed a bit deep into the glass. The pen was filled with an acid, corrosive on silica, such as glass engravers use. He let the stuff smoke a minute while he carefully repocketed his pen. By that time, the acid had eaten almost through the pane. The agent drew out his thimble suction cup and pressed it delicately against the glass. He pushed the pane inward with a thick thrust, holding the thimble so it wouldn't drop, and swung a leg over the sill. He was in the room, standing upright before this window, when King turned in horror. The agent silenced him with a commanding gesture of his quickly drawn gun. The insurance man's eyes bulged. X spoke softly with a steely, compelling note in his low-pitched voice. Don't move, King. I'm going to save you the trouble of me and the criminals tonight. I'm going to save you from possible death. Before King could answer, the spurt of vapor from the agent's gas gun sent him staggering to his knees. From that position, he swayed and toppled silently to the floor. The air was heavy. X did not wait for the fumes to clear. There wasn't a moment to be lost. He worked with a giddiness in his head while the vapor of his own weapon drifted slowly out the severed pane. He locked the door, made up his face as King's. Not till he slipped on a thin toupee of the same shade as King's and duplicated the insurance man's features did he think about King's clothes. King's frame was slightly bigger than his own. The clothes were slightly larger. He put them over the suit and trousers he was wearing, and the garments beneath took up the slack. He appeared to be Norton King in the flesh as he straightened. His face was tense. Any moment there might be an interruption. He was working against desperate odds being so close to King's family. He quickly lifted King's inert body through the closet door. He made the man comfortable with pillows, then he closed the door and locked it, keeping the key. Steps down below as he descended the stairs. King's wife, a pretty, gray-haired woman, came toward him worriedly. I hate to have you take a plane, Norton, at night like this. Could you possibly wait until tomorrow? Those few words told Axe that Mrs. King had no inkling of her husband's mission. He patted her arm and spoke in the voice he had carefully memorized from the digraph cylinder he picked up in Bates' office. Don't you worry. There is nothing to fly in these days. I'll be safer than I would in a taxi. This deal can't be put off, but you'll hear from me in the morning. There was a vaguely troubled, uneasy look in the woman's eyes. X kissed her on the cheek and strode to the door with a cheery, Goodbye. He took a deep breath of relief when he was outside. 
a taxi bore him to the downtown bank where he learned previously that the suitcase of cash was ready. He took the suitcase and driven in 20 minutes to the city airport. His pulse started faster at sight of the trim monoplane drawn up on the cement apron before him. The engine was already ticking over, warming. The pilot was seated right at the controls. It was a swift two-seater, open cockpit job with the pilot riding forward. A man from the operations office came toward X, holding a big coonskin coat, helmet, and goggles. I think you made a mistake charting an open ship tonight, Mr. King. We've plenty of cabin planes. You'd have been warmer than one of them. I like fresh air. Take these, then, said the airport attendant. He helped the agent into the big coat and handed him the helmet. Good luck to you, Mr. King. Pleasant landing. The man touched his cap and the agent strode away. It wasn't the first time he had started on a perilous night flight, but still he felt more strongly he was heading into the unknown. The pilot jumped down from his cockpit to help X in. You've got your nerve with you, Mr. King. Most Kiwis want to take an open ship at night. Due west is what you said, I think. Yes, and don't forget to keep your wing lights on. Where will you be wanting to land? You've got your radio. Get instructions later on. Follow them. The pilot still looked anxious. It's pretty indefinite, sir. What altitude would you like? 2,000 will do, and don't be surprised or lose your nerve, whatever happens. If you handle the plane nicely, it'll be a $100 bonus. Again, the pilot saluted, and the grin came back to his face. Count on me, sir. You've got a good man at the stick. I grew my wings at Kelly. The agent, experienced veteran of the air, saw at once that this pilot knew his job. The monoplane taxied down the field, turned gracefully into the wind, and sped forward. It took off without the slightest jar of air-cushioned wheels, nosing upward with a smooth, swift elevation. The plane seemed still. The ground appeared to drop behind and fall backward. The pilot banked, leveled out, and straightened, and the plane roared toward the west with the lights of the city glowing far below. Night wind, keen as a tonic, whipped at the agent's face. He thrilled his eyes to the swift, effortless pace of flying, but did not distract him from the grim mission that lay ahead. The rhythmic hum of the big radial engine told that every cylinder was functioning. He only wished he could be as sure of his destiny as he was of the pilot and this plane. Miles fled behind. The city gave way to a long stretch of black country with faint lights showing here and there, as though the sky had been inverted and there were dim stars poking through the clouds. Up overhead, gray mist lay in a solid, curtaining wall with the moon shining somewhere far above it. The agent looked at his watch. 8.30. An uneasy sense of waiting filled him. When would the sinister criminals send out their unseen instructions? X did not know. The plane droned steadily westward. In a half hour, they had gone almost 100 miles. He held the suitcase of cash gripped firmly between his knees. Then he started. His goggled eyes, the true airman sense, roved over the ground and sky like continuous, restless scrutiny. And ahead of them, close to the ragged edge of the gray mist, he saw dimly a drifting shadow. It was no more than that, but the pale light of the moon above made it discernible to one who had studied endless miles of sky hours on end. The agent's finger tautened. He watched with breathless interest, conscious of the dull beat of his own heart. The shadow of the other plane was moving crosswise to the course they were taking, but as they passed under it, his strain followed. It was at least a thousand feet above. The young pilot up front bent over his controls, waiting for a radio message hadn't seen it. The plane came down like a gray specter of the clouds, a superior altitude giving it added speed as it dived. For a moment, X thought its purpose was to crash them. He had a picture of a flaming, spinning wreck dropping toward Earth. His hand reached out instinctively to take the controls, but there were none in his cockpit, and his quick brain told him that gold-greedy criminals would take no chances with $200,000 in cash. They must have some other plan. He saw what it was in a moment. As the unlighted plane came directly above, speed synchronized with theirs, a black something dangled below it. The pilot of X's plane heard the roar of the other motor and lifted his head. His sudden awareness of the ghostly sky presence was reflected in the lurch of the ship. He started the nose downward, but X tapped his shoulder, and when the young pilot turned, he shook his head. 
The pilot leveled and held his course grimly. X waited grimly, too. The black object had resolved itself into a man. He was hanging on the end of a rope ladder as the gray plane settled lower. Already one arm was reaching out. Under the glow of the cockpit light, something glinted in it. The man held a gun. This was how the criminals intended to make their contact. This was their foolproof scheme to pick up the cash. It was simple as well as daring, but the secret agent's mouth set in a hard, straight line. The man on the rope ladder was only 12 feet above him now. He was making gestures with his gun, beckoning. X could dimly see the gleam of his goggled eyes like those of some huge crustacean. X raised the suitcase, shook it. The man above him nodded. The belly of the other ship slid farther down. X didn't rise. He made the swinging, goggled figure drop to within a few feet. He waited till the man's arm had almost touched the suitcase handle. Then he made a desperate upward lunge, dropping the suitcase back into the cockpit, locking his arms around the goggled figure. The man screamed and let his weapon fall. He struggled fiercely, struck at the agent's ribs with savage blows. Then, while they battled, the two ships drew apart. X was drawn bodily out of the cockpit, pulled across the padded foam, lifted into black and dizzy space. Chapter 8. Webs of Crime X made no attempt to save himself before it was too late by letting go. He knew his desperate danger, but the blazing light of battle was in his eyes. The agent was a gambler, staking everything now. Wing clutched and tore at him with giant fingers. The man he grasped was a human pendulum swinging in a sickening arc, a plunging weight of dynamic fury seeking to break his hold and send him hurtling into the black void below. The man's breath fanned against his face. The gleaming, goggled eyes glared deadly hate. In those first few seconds, the agent realized that one of them must die. Death yawned beneath him, waiting. Death howled a pan of frenzy in the biting lash of the wind. And this man was a killer, one of a pack of killers, pledged to plunder and terrorize society. The man's leg was twisted firmly in the squares of the rope ladder. He was braced, secure, while the agent still depended on his arms. All the demonic forces of destruction seemed to hold him at a disadvantage. The fingers of his left hand clutched a rope strand behind the man's straining body. He risked freeing his right, clamped his legs around the other, and struck with piston blows. Under the force of them, the man screamed again, and his arms threw up. He crooked both hands around the agent's throat. He pressed with the merciless ferocity of a killer. Stars that had no existence streamed for a moment before the agent's eyes. Pain speared his windpipe. He struck blindly, steadily, and the man's grip did not weaken. The heavy leather flying coat the other wore was padded like a quilt. Fists against his body had little effect. The agent jerked back, risking a loosening of his hold, forcing the man before him to straighten his arms. The strangling thumb still held, biting deep into the agent's throat, shutting off his wind. The agent struck up between them in a rocket-like jab that brought his knuckles against the man's bony chin. The man quivered. He butted his head savagely against the agent's face. He, his helmeted skull pressed in the agent's goggles almost broke them against his eyes. Pain racked his forehead. Again, his fists flew up, striking at a more acute angle, meeting the hard flesh of the other's jaw. The man stayed forward. The agent twisted away. The hands at his throat broke loose, seeming to tear flesh with them. The man freed one leg from the ladder and lashed out with his doubled-up knee. It caught the agent in the side. For an instant, pain almost catapulted him to his death. The man's knee struck close to an old scar on the agent's body, a scar made long ago by shrapnel, shaped like a crude axe. It was a vulnerable spot. Under the weight of the blow, the agent's heart seemed nearly to stop, and blackness pressed at his brain. He twisted again, swinging sideways out into space, sensing dimly the man's knee would strike again. It did, but this time glanced off the agent's coat. X put all his ebony strength into his arm. His fist connected with the man's bony jaw. The man doubled up, his body jackknifed forward. A shriek tore from his slobbering lips as he plunged downward. His trailing hands clutched desperately at the agent's coat, almost taking X with him. In a moment, he was gone, swallowed by the night. Weakly, dizzily, the agent gripped the dancing ladder. Then his eyes jerked up to the roaring ship above. He tried to climb toward it. For an instant, silhouetted against the moon-blanched clouds, he saw the monster-like fuselage of the plane with wings outspread. He caught a glimpse of the helmet ahead of the pilot. 
Then a light winked on. Dazzling, lancing beam fell on the agent's upturned face, blinding him utterly. He swung backwards with all his might under the belly of the ship, avoiding the beam. Momentum brought him back in a moment. The light caught him again, and a sinister cough above the roar of the skycraft's motor told X that the pilot was shooting. The leaden lash of a bullet brushed his arm. He clawed at his heavy coat. His hand plunged down to a pocket beneath it. His fingers came back grasping the butt of an automatic. With deadly, desperate aim, he fired upward. His first shot missed. His second sent the light spinning into space. He did not know whether he'd struck the pilot or merely hit the flash. His eyes were still blinded by its beam. In a moment, they cleared, and the winking flame above him told the man overhead was still firing. The agent pumped the trigger, and the firing ceased. For a second, his heart stood still. He started to climb desperately. What if he had killed the pilot? He had no time to think. Inhuman force seemed to strike him. The wind became a substance, rock hard against his body. The rope ladder tautened like steel as the ship dived, jerking it back. The plane was plunging earthward. He waited, teeth clenched, hands like talons, his body straightening out like a fish drawn behind a speedboat. The plane, which had been above, was now almost ahead of him. Its speed mounted till the wind in its wings was a scream. At first, he thought the pilot had been shot and lost control. Then he sensed the man was alive and filled with deadly purpose. He was power-diving desperately, trying to whip the agent off. Somewhere below, the black ground was rushing up. The mad dive continued three seconds that were eternities. Only the agent's steely muscles prevented from losing his hold. There could be no question of climbing now. If he hung on, he would be lucky. Breath came from his mouth in a choking gasp. The black earth had taken form and shape. There were lights showing, the lights of a broad highway. The pilot was plunging toward this. The man above had devised a sure way of killing him. In a matter of seconds now, his body would strike either against the trees that lined the highway or against the wires strung along it. The pilot was taking a chance to destroy him, counting that the frail rope would break, that X would be torn from his hole or battered into jelly. The plane began flattening slightly as the man above lifted his nose. He was pulling out of his dive to save his own life as he neared the ground. The plane heeled over like a ship in a storm. It was almost level. The pilot brought it around in a screaming bank. He headed straight for the glistening telephone wires that edged the road. With lessening speed, the agent's body trailed lower. He saw the wires rushing toward him. They would cut him in two, shred his body like meat across a chopper. In front of them, he saw something else. There was a glint of the reflected light on water. A pond or lake lay beside the highway. With teeth clenched, knowing that certain death awaited if he held on an instant longer, the agent let go of his hole and dropped. His body turned over and over in the air under the thrust of his battery momentum. He could see nothing, hear nothing, save the roar of the wind in his ears. An instant, without his knowing it, his life hung by a slender thread. For the arc of his fall carried him almost beyond the pond, up to its very edge. He struck in six feet of icy water with a mighty splash. Half on his back, half on his shoulders, the air was knocked from his lungs. The pond's surface seemed as unyielding as cement, so great was his speed. Only his thick coat saved him from broken bones. He plowed through the water, choking, gasping, finally coming to a stop, feet jammed among slimy reeds. He lay for a minute two days to move, then pulled himself weakly upright. Something moved above the string of roadway lights, a gray shadow flattened turned. The plane was coming back. X sensed what this would mean. He tried to move and his knees sank into thick black mud. A roaring monster swept down upon him. He fell forward on his face and reached for the reed stems. The plane's landing lights and a spotlight mounted on the motor cowling were on. It skimmed down so low that its air wheels almost brushed the back of the agent. The pilot had seen him, realized the X wasn't dead. The man was shooting insanely. Bullets spattered in the mud close to X, making miniature craters, sending black jets against his face. One plucked at his shoulder, ripped the coat sleeve open. The plane swept on and darkness closed in again. The agent drew himself slowly into the reeds. Later that night, three mysterious figures sat in a darkened room. Masks concealed their faces. The glint of their eyes through slitted holes in the thick material was sinister, determined. They crouched like grim vultures around a wide top table. They appeared to be hardly breathing. Their postures were frozen. Their glittering gazes were fixedly intent. 
No sound penetrated the chamber till one of them gave a short, harsh laugh, coming almost as an explosion in the silence. The words which followed, low and muffled by the fabric across his mouth, were like whispering echoes in the hideous twilight of a tomb. We've been fools, he grated. Fools to run the risk of letting this man live when he might have killed him. Fools! Another of the masked figures nodded in bitter agreement. Two hundred thousand gone. Our first payment snatched from our noses just because... The third masked figure held up his hand and broke angrily into the conversation. Wait! You both know as well as I that collection is the stumbling block of all such schemes. We discussed that in the beginning. Look at kidnapper the G-men have jailed. Look at the number of extortionists who have been caught. It's no game for children. Or cowards. He glared around for a moment. When no one answered, he continued in an undertone of contempt. Why get hysterical? Torn thousands is nothing to what we'll make later on. Our plan has limited scope. Unlimited possibilities. This setback tonight needn't worry us. It's proof that our idea is fundamentally sound. People are becoming frightened. Frightened people will pay. What good will it do if we can't collect? We can collect. We will. The police didn't bother us, did they? The interference came from one man only. A man we knew at the start we would have to look out for. Now we've a definite proof of his daring. Now we know where we stand. With Secret Agent X. Yes, with Secret Agent X. And I'm glad you didn't succeed in killing him the night after he'd taken the money. What? Are you mad? Do you mean that? Yes. He showed up the weakness of our method of collection. No one else would have dared attempt what he did, but the next time our contacting plane might easily be shot down. Suppose there'd been a million waiting instead of 200,000. We would have lost that too. We've got to find some better method. I agree, but we can't afford to trifle with X. What made you suggest in the first place that we study his habits into killing him outright? It was a mistake. He must die. He will die when we've finished with him. But I thought of him in connection with a certain plan from the beginning. I'm going to ask you a question. What sets X apart from all their criminals? How has he managed to escape the police for so many months? You know as well as I, it is the skills that disguise. Exactly. And we've had convincing proof of it, even though we were familiar with his habits. We didn't suspect that he played the part of Norton King, not till the incident happened in the plane. He fooled us. Has it occurred to either of you that such a man can go anywhere, appears anybody he pleases through his ability of impersonation, would make the ideal collector for our own undertaking? You're being absurd. Theatrical. No. I am in dead earnest. X spoiled our play tonight, preventing us from cashing in. Now I propose that we make him our collector. It can't be done! You ought to know it. If that's what you've had on your mind all along, you're insane. X is a lone wolf, a crook who has no friends in the underworld and no allies. He plays for high stakes, but he always plays alone. We've nothing to offer that would make him join in with us. If we had, we wouldn't trust him. The man who had proposed X as a collector laughed. There was harshness, wickedness in his mirth. Everyone has a price. Not X. He has power, position, money. He's independent. You'd be playing with fire. Fire is our specialty. I have in mind a very unusual method of bargaining. And that's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.